You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Get your Bibles ready. I'm going to tell you real quick what I want you to like pin in your Bible, what you look up on your phone, and you're going to hold it there until I tell you, okay? Have Isaiah 13 ready and Isaiah 19 ready. Just have those ready to shoot. We're going to be mainly dealing in the text of Mark 13, verses 24 through 27. This is a continuation of what we talked about uh, last week, right? We're going to be looking at uh, eschatology. So I want to give you a bit of a warning, a content advisory. Uh, When I say some of you are going to disagree with me, let's just, most of you are going to disagree with me today. And that's okay. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that if you disagree with me in the area of eschatology. Uh, Reason being is because this content is open-handed material, right? This is not essential to what it means to be a Christian. This area of eschatology is uh, very complex. And just, look, Will said it last week that there are, even the pastors disagree. I disagree with some of the past other guys. Some of the other guys disagree with me. The reason why, you know, maybe they disagree with me is because they haven't come to the realization that they're wrong yet. But they'll get there. Just pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. Um, But in all all seriousness, uh, it's because this stuff is just complex, and you're going to see that. Um, So much of what the stuff we're going to be talking about, uh, it's not that it's not important, right? It's not that it's not important. I just want to reemphasize. There are areas where we need to be able to disagree, and you need to be okay with that. And this is one of them. This is not essential, okay? There are three points today. That is the gathering, the signs, and the time. And with each one of these points, there are things that are unclear about the text and some things that are very clear about the text. So before we open up Scripture, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I thank you that we can come to you, to your throne of grace, and ask you for help and comfort. And Lord, I ask that we do that today as we deal with some difficult texts. I ask for a spirit of unity in our church, Lord, that we are able to disagree about things that aren't major. Lord, I, I just thank you that we can study your word, that we can sing to you. You allow us to do that. And I just pray that you use your words today to bring correction where there needs correction and to train us up in righteousness. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first point we're going to see is the gathering, okay? This is Mark 13, 24 through 27. I'm going to read that now. It says, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels. And gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the the ends of heaven. So if you remember last week when Will was talking about the first part of Mark 13, right? Jesus says, listen, I'm going to destroy the temple. And I'm going to turn every brick, every brick's coming down. And naturally, the disciples say, okay, well, that's concerning. Uh, When's that going to happen? I've got questions. And so Jesus explains, um, as I think uh, Will pointed out well, that what the disciples thought was also the destruction of the temple, which is also the end of the world, that these two things are not the same. Rather, he explains to this group of disciples that there's going to be persecution through tribulation and through judgment. Now, Jesus' main point here, as you heard, is that he's going to gather his people 
But before that happens, right, we see there's tribulation and maybe some sort of cosmic event as the sun goes dark and the stars fall. And that's the part that gets unclear. So let's look at it again. If you don't mind, put 24 and 25 back up on the screen for me. You'll see that it says, after that tribulation. So here, right in the beginning of 24, we already will be at odds, maybe with one another. There's already different views at this point. The first issue arises when we try to put a date on the tribulation. Now, if you believe Jesus, or you, one of two things, either Jesus is talking to them about a tribulation they will face, or he's talking to a future generation about a great tribulation that is coming. If you think the tribulation hasn't happened yet, then you're what's called a futurist. A perfectly fine position to have. An orthodox position to have. One started around uh, after the Great Awakening, around uh, after the 1850s, it became really popular. But because I have to be difficult, that's not my position. I hold to what most of church history held to, and that doesn't mean it's right. It could be just a really wrong old idea. But I hold that the tribulation, the great tribulation, happened to the early church. I believe it's what Acts reports to us about when Christians were killed and what Paul writes extensively about in the epistles where Christians were persecuted. Now, I think much of the, old, the New Testament deals right, with this great persecution that many of them endured. And what I would argue is that Jesus is answering the question. Since you disciples are asking me, when, when will this tribulation and judgment happen? Jesus seems to be telling them, in my opinion, you are going to face tribulation. Now take a look. And by the way, if you disagree with me, it's okay. You're going to hear me say that a lot. It's fine. Some of you are curling up your nose already like, I don't like where this guy is going. Just, just hear me out for a second. Take a look at what, last, uh, what Will preached last week in Mark 13. Back in verse 14, notice when, again, uh, you may not see it up here. You may open up your Bibles, Mark 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination, when you see the abomination of desolation standing there, where you ought not, verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, speaking to the disciples, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it. Verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So, I think when Jesus says you, he's speaking to the disciples. I do not think when he says you, he's speaking to me over 2,000 years later or whenever you think the Great Tribulation is going to happen. He tells them, right? Listen, he says to you, you are going to see the temple destroyed. They did in 70 AD. He tells them you are going to see a great persecution, which they did. Christians were heavily persecuted and killed. So because I do not see this as a futurist event in a day where you know, myself or my kids or grandkids are going to experience, I know some of you are like, well, all right, well, you have to explain the following text, right? Because it says there's a great tribulation, and then there's some crazy stuff that follows, right? Verse 24, but in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
Now listen, I check the weather every day. Last time I checked the weather, the sun was still in the sky. And stars, I saw them last night. The moon I saw the other night, I've seen these things. So if they're still there, you might be going, what is so unclear about it then? Obviously, the tribulation hasn't happened because the cosmos is still intact. Only if it were that simple. All right, now I told you to get Isaiah 13 ready for me, right? So you have Isaiah 13 ready because you are interested in maybe this different perspective. So if you would, turn to Isaiah 13. It's not going to be on the screen. You're going to have to have it ready in your hands. Let me read it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Most tra- or A lot of translations have this area in Mark 13 in quotations or italicized because Jesus is quoting Isaiah 13. And again, you might go, what's the big deal? Yeah, sure, he's quoting Isaiah about what's going to happen like in 2021. But there's a problem with that. Isaiah 13 is not talking about the end of the world. Isaiah 13, if you continue reading, is talking about the judgment of the Babylonians. He says, all this stuff is going to happen, and I'm going to raise up the Medes. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Persians. I'm going to raise them up to crush the Babylonians. Isaiah 13 is not, again, the end of the world. It's a judgment on the Babylonians. Now, no one believes that there was a point in the Babylonian reign where the stars fell and the sun stopped shining and the moon quit. Right? No, no one holds to that. Stars and suns and moons are often symbolic in Scripture, right? This, they're often used as things of authority. In fact, maybe the most popular one that you're all familiar with, when, when in, uh, Scripture talks about how the Lord threw down one-third of the stars from the heavens. What's he, is he talking about stars? No, this is metaphorical language of judgment that happened to Satan and to demons. So my argument is this. Just as the Lord talked about this cosmic event as in Isaiah 13, just as that had to deal with the judgment of the Babylonians, Mark 13, this passage, deals with judgment coming to unrepentant apostate Israel that we would see in fulfillment in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now think about it. Much of Israel, you know the scripture, denied Christ. If you remember uh, Barabbas, right? Barabbas, if you remember that character, he was a murderer. They, uh, they said, who do you want to free from prison, Jesus or Barabbas? And they all cheered for Barabbas. And in that, in that scene, they all yell out, all of Israel, we have no other king but Caesar. This was apostate Israel who subject themselves to judgment by God. So I believe just as the Persians were raised up by the Lord that crushed the Babylonians, that Jesus is telling Israel's apostate Israel is having their day of judgment, and it's going to happen, and you, to the disciples, will see it. Now this phrase, by the way, is not the only language invoked from Isaiah. In fact, some of you are like, all right, all right, maybe, maybe you have a point. 
Some of you are like, no, you're just crazy. But then we have the next verse, right? Verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And all of you can say with great confidence, well, that hasn't happened, Jeremy. I know for a fact that hasn't happened. Let's go to Isaiah 19. <laughs> Look at Isaiah 19, like I told you beforehand. Have it ready. Listen to this. An oracle concerning Egypt. And behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt, I'm reading verse 1 and 2 of Isaiah 19. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight against each other, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Now, I don't think any of us would say that Jesus rode in on the clouds in the judgment of Egypt. So then how do we take this text? What do we do with it? You know what we say? It's metaphorical. It's metaphorical. He didn't really come back in the days of Egypt. And so what I would argue is that Jesus, just as he's using Isaiah 13 judgment language to describe judgment on Israel, he again uses judgment language, using Isaiah 19, to speak of the judgment coming to apostate Israel. It's figurative language. Now, some of you I know probably concerned because you're like, man, aren't you like, shouldn't we take the Bible literally? Yes. But we often need to understand, right? Okay, when the Lord, when, when Scripture says the Lord owns the cattle on the thousand hills, do we go, only a thousand hills? Or is it much more than that? That's figurative language, isn't it? We know that. We don't assume that there's only a thousand hills. We recognize sometimes scripture is symbolic and the only way to read it literally is to take it figuratively. Now, the early church, what I mean, I mean second, third, fourth century and on, saw Mark 13 as symbolic, as did Jewish culture. Right? Judgment was coming against the nation who were given the prophets and who denied the Messiah. Now, this puts our idea of the gathering in a bit of a tizzy. Because there's one perspective that's, that, that is a gathering is a rapture. Nothing wrong with that. Perfectly fine. It won't surprise you at this point that I'm going to be difficult and say, no, I don't think so. If you hold to rapture, again, totally fine. Just totally fine. To bring clarity, um, as you have probably already guessed, I do not. Now, something all Christians believe in, whether or not you believe in a rapture or not, you be, all Christians believe in what's called the first resurrection, when Christ returns and raises up those who are his to be with him forever. Now, this sounds awfully what I think to be the end here of Mark 13. And so the significance is we're not waiting for a third temple we're not waiting for a nation to do anything. I think, I think the tribulation, the judgment was on that generation, and now our generation simply waits for our king's return. As much as I like to talk about the unclear, let me make that very clear. I, am very, I have very strong opinions 
but it's unclear. What should be our focus is not what is unclear, but what is very clear. Again, the unclear is fun to talk about. And if you never took me up on coffee about talking about taxes, and now you're like, I'll talk to you about this over coffee, I would love to do that. But our main point when we see this text needs to be the promise, that we see the promise that despite what happens, the Lord promises, I will gather what is mine. Now he's speaking about what has to happen before his return, a tribulation, a judgment. By the way, not to send them to the basements, making charts, watching the news nervously, and tracking blood moons. That's not why he's telling them this. The clear part of this passage is that he is returning to gather his children. You know, Jesus said, if you look, if you have Mark 13 open, if you look back in verse 11, uh, in the same chapter, right? Jesus says, do not be anxious. Now, obviously, I think that Jesus is speaking to that generation in front of him, but that truth still should remain, right? Sin still impacts every aspect of our life, right? There's still difficulties we face. There's still persecution that we're going to go through through his namesake. Jesus tells us that. So why does he tell us not to be anxious? Because he promises to return and gather his kids and secure them for eternity. Church, I think what's clear is that your rescue is coming. And he promises to gather his children. And we may disagree on when or how that process plays out. But what should cause us to sing in unity is that we have a God who's alive, who promises not to abandon you. We see, by the way, when you read this text, we see our rescue is not in our own hands. It's not by uh, some sort of political revolution. Our rescue isn't in the hands of a political leader making right foreign policy decisions. It's in the hands, and it's already written and determined by your rescuer, Christ Jesus. So whenever you think these events may occur, know and remember that the Lord is over them. Your rescue will come by your rescuer. Jesus was not trying to give you ulcers or give them ulcers, but hope in the midst of what looks like to be an unraveling world. What looks like an unravel is really him in complete control. So this should cause you to rest the Sabbath and his promise. The second point is signs. Now, if you don't know, I turned 38 uh, this, this past week, um, and it was really funny. My, you know, my son, he was really nervous that he was going to miss a birthday. And I don't have birthday parties. I, don't, I, don't, I can't tell you the last birthday party. I don't really do birthdays. Like, side note, I kind of feel like mom did all the work, so like mom should be celebrated on people's birthdays. But, but even then, like, I, I, I don't, my son knows this, but he said, dad, 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 listen, when you're, he couldn't remember my birthday, right? Calendars are foreign to him. He says, when, can you give me a hint when your birthday's here? I said, sure, what do you want me to do? He's like, well, can you wear a shirt? 
that says, it is my birthday. <laughs> That's not so much a hint, but I said, well, I don't have a shirt that says, it is my birthday. Uh, and even if I did, Maddox, you, you, you know, you could read some of it, but you're just learning how to read. And you're like, oh, yes, reading, yes, yes, I need that. All right, all right, all right, all right. How about this, Dad? When you get up, put on a birthday hat. You're on a birthday hat, and that will let me know a sign that it is your birthday. Now, in the same way, disciples are worried they're going to miss the big bash, right? They're going to miss the, the, the Father's day. And so now they're saying, hey, we need some signs. And so Mark, or Jesus, says, all right, 13, uh, chapter 13, 28 through 31. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, that is, tribulation and judgment, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus has given some signs of the end, right? The, though, though the question here that is a bit unclear is, okay, who sees the signs? Who is the generation that sees these things? Now, that's what I want. This is the unclear part I want to examine. Who is this generation? If you believe that all of this will happen in the future, then this generation does not mean those who Christ is speaking to in that moment, but it means the generation that will see judgment and tribulation. Now, that's a perfectly fine perspective. Perfectly fine. Orthodox. Though, of course, as I typically do, I disagree. As I pointed out earlier, Jesus keeps saying, you, 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 to the people who ask the questions. So naturally, I think Jesus is speaking to them. So he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will see these things take place. Now, some critique this position, uh, and I've heard it be put this way, and I find it a little bit concerning. They'll say, okay, listen, if, if Jesus is talking to them about the signs, and they're the ones who experience the tribulation, if they're the ones who experience this judgment, they see it all happen, then all of this is irrelevant to me. Why, why do we even study this stuff? What's the point of it? And I've heard this before, and I want you to think, every single week, what do we study? In fact, every single week, what do we do at the end of every service? Something had happened before you were born that had been promised before you were born, that came into fulfillment before you were born, that has huge implications on today. That is, Christ died, was buried, and resurrected, and we celebrate that in communion every week. So just because something happened before doesn't mean it's not relevant to you. In fact, I would say, look, the covenant with Abraham, that through your seed there's going to be someone that's going to come and save the world, right? That was given and fulfilled before I was born. God rescues Moses, foreshadowing a greater rescue of bondage, 
right, that happened before I was born. In fact, really all the scriptures were written before I was born. That doesn't make it not relevant to me. It means it's written for me, not to me. I'm not the church of Corinth. But it's written for my benefit because I can see that the promises of God stand and will forever stand. I can see his faithfulness. I can see the nature of the Lord that we worship. Now, we could argue all day about that. But what is clear, and this should bring us to worship, is the topic at hand, which is difficulty is coming. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to see some crazy stuff. Violent stuff. Scary stuff. And you're going to ask God, what on earth are you doing? You're going to see things take place. And this isn't, by the way, this isn't, this is a promise to all Christians, right? You're going to see people die. You're going to see families severed, relationships broken. You're going to see nations fall. And your faith could be shaken. But what does he say? As permanent as the earth seems, it's going to pass away. Think about that. If the earth passed away, that seems, that seems pretty final. But it's not. He says the heavens will pass away. Seems pretty final, but it's not. What Jesus makes perfectly clear is nothing is more permanent and sure as his word. As confident as you are about the ground beneath your feet, the promises of God are more sturdy and sure. Jesus says, my word, right, it's not going to fail. It's not going to pass away. So Jesus says, when he is coming, whenever you may think that be, do not let the sin and suffering of this world make you doubt the promises of God. Now, he gives signs, right, as a reminder of this promise. Again, I, I think the signs are, are not to us, but to them, to the disciples in which he's speaking. But the essence of the nature of this promise still is the same, right? Whenever your world is unraveling, remember, his word never fails. The Lord is clear, I keep my word. You are not abandoned. I will gather you. And when you begin to doubt that, remember on the promise in which you can stand. Remember who gave the promise. I'm picking on my son a little bit today. We were... Five Guys. It was, and, and Five Guys, if you never, in Scott Depot, there's, there's a Five Guys there, and there's a little board. You can do doodles, and you can stick them up on the board. And um, we're doing that, and, and I'm going to get a refill. I'm kind of watching him from a distance as he's finishing his, you know, hamburger drawing to stick up on the board. And I looked at him, and I saw this. He turned around to see me. Now, he didn't see me, even though I was 10 feet away from him. And he begins to panic, right? You see it in his face. I mean, just turns white, his eyes get real big, and he just starts looking around, and he's passing me every single time. And I can see his mouth going, Dad, 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 Dad. I, I, listen, I've never lost my son anywhere, right? I, I've, I can't, my son fears abandonment, and I don't know why. I've never threatened him to abandon him. I've never lost him, but he fears it. And I, I wave him down, I'm like, yeah, I'm over here, buddy. What are you, no reason to worry, 
So I went up, you know, went, tried to comfort him. I said, I'm right here. He's like, oh, oh man, I thought you left me. I said, why, why would you think I left you? Like, <laughs> of course I didn't leave you. And he said, well, maybe you forgot we were together. <laughs> I'm like, listen. Now, because he thought his father forgot about him, he began to panic. But often, we are exactly the same in our Christian walk. We begin to panic because we think our Father in Heaven has somehow forgot about us or forgot that the world is crazy or that we think something has lost out of his sight and that has slipped out of his grip. And just like Maddox, we begin to panic. When we're called to remember that when crisis hits, our Father is watching and he is in control. The last point is the time. Mark 13, 32-37. It says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. But even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each, will, uh, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake." So Jesus starts with all this, with referencing his return, right? There's going to be a tribulation, a judgment. And it says here that no one knows but the Father, which puts us right up against what's unclear about this passage. If Jesus is God, if Jesus is God, how can there be something he does not know? Now, I pray that all of you are going to agree with me. In fact, this is a point where hopefully what is unclear, there's not disagreement, which puts me a little bit more at ease. Now, this is an academic question with with, uh, some gospel ramifications. It cannot be that Jesus is not fully God. Jesus, if he's not fully God, then he cannot forgive sins. Scripture is pretty clear that it is only God who can forgive sins. In fact, when Jesus says that he forgives people's sins, the Pharisees try to stone him and say, Ah, you blasphemer, you claim to be God. So Jesus knew what he was proclaiming, and so did everybody else. But Jesus is, we know, Scripture tells us, fully God and fully man. And you might say, how is it, Jeremy, that Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man. So this is what I want you to do. Please get out something to write on, write with, type in, whatever. And I want you to listen to me clearly because it's very important you hear the answer to this. Some of you aren't taking me seriously. You need to get out something to write with. And write, listen, very carefully. I don't know. All right, we can move on. No, I'm kidding. We won't move on. But that's the answer. I don't know. I have no clue because my mind can't wrap around that, right? There used to be a time where I would have tried to stood in front of you and tried to give you some sort of explanation, but I can't. I don't, I don't know. But listen, that's not all that 
shouldn't be all that shocking to you. I also don't understand how like my cell phone works. And I don't mean like in the old man sense, like I can't turn it on, though I struggle with that sometimes too. But like how is it that my voice, I speak into a device and it goes into a different, I don't understand that. I don't understand how TVs work. I don't understand how planes fly. I, this is a bit embarrassing given that I'm a 30 year old male. Like, I feel like I should know this, but I don't understand how I can put liquid in my car. And, and there's little explosions in the front of the car without making there be a big explosion at all. But I don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand black holes. I don't understand gravity. I don't understand why in West Virginia we call shopping carts buggies. There is a ton I don't understand let alone the infinite complexities of the Trinity or the complexities of the hypersetic union where Christ is both fully man and fully God. But if you want to try, the best way is just to simply explain it with Scripture. And this isn't going to please you intellectually. It's not going to be on the screen. It's in Philippians. Paul says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in his humanity, Jesus humbled himself in many different forms while on earth, and this includes him not knowing. Now, can I intellectually grasp that? No, not at all. Not really. What it does is requires me to become humble and realize, hey, we just can't understand everything. The Christian faith has mystery, and it's better if we can sometimes just embrace that. That, hey, in our infinite understanding, we can't understand the infinite God. We are finite beings. Now, it's interesting, because guess what? So is eschatology. All of eschatology is wrapped up in mystery. The whole thing. Jesus is like, no one knows the time, and we're like, well, we're going to try. <laughs> And we obsess over it. It's okay, so sometimes like I do like reverse psychology with my kids, as all good parents do. Uh, my my son, uh, <laughs> Maddox or Claire is so much easier. She's got well, she's more difficult in some ways, but she is she has understood my reverse psychology and doesn't fall prey to it. Maddox, on the other hand, Maddox is uh, he's still young enough, he'll say, Dad, I, I don't want to go to bed. I'm like, I know you don't, buddy. I know you don't. You're a little guy. And little guys don't like to go to bed. Little guys, they don't have the wisdom that big guys have, that they need sleep. And I go on about how he's just a little guy. It's totally fine. He can stay up late because he's a little guy. And you see those wheels turning like, well, I don't want to be a little guy. <laughs> dad, dad, I think I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Like he got one over on me. As he marches off the room, I'm like, oh, boy, you got me, Maddox. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is doing, by the way. Jesus is not trying to use reverse psychology on you. No one knows the time, hoping that you try to sit in your basement and figure it out. That's not what's happening. He meant it. Accept the mystery. And be okay with not knowing or understanding everything. Now, I want you to listen again. If you didn't catch it the first time, do you listen to what Jesus actually wants them to focus on? What is the clear part of the passage? Let's read it again, 33 through 37, if you don't mind putting that up on the screen. Be on guard. Keep awake. 
for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Therefore, what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake. He's not exhorting them to try to figure out the end times. He's exhorting them to stay awake and not fall asleep. Now, this is a message for sleepy people, people who struggle staying focused. And I hope you remember the past parts of Mark when we see how frustratingly unfocused the disciples are and sadly how relatable that is to us. Jesus is telling them, stay awake. No one knows when I'm coming back, but when I do, I do not want to find you asleep. Don't let me catch you unfocused and undisciplined, unaware at the task at hand. And churches, you know, right, something we all do agree on, Jesus has not returned yet. And like the disciples, You've been given the mission, the gospel. You are in charge of dispensing it to the lost and caring for the body of Christ. And rather become overly focused on the unclear, it's imperative that we become focused on what is clear. And so what is that? It's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we asleep are you awake? Church, are you spiritually asleep? It's more important to know what that looks like because Jesus gives you the warning. He doesn't want to return and find you slumbering. And so I think Scripture is pretty clear on this and what a sleepy Christian looks like. It looks like a weakening vigilance against sin. What you used to hate, you now tolerate. The anger and frustration you used to have with your sin, you, you now come to peace with it. Accept it. That's who I am. That's my sin. It's all right. There's worse sinners out there. It looks like a lack of conviction, a lack of confession, a lack of desire of, of his word. But what is Jesus saying? Be on guard. Keep awake. Now listen, I think you should study eschatology. It's good. And, and if you disagree with me on how I think it happens again, that is totally fine. If, if this, if at least my opinion gets you talking about Scripture around the dinner table, then that's a win. That's a great thing. But before you get obsessed about the unclear, be obsessed with obeying Christ be on guard and keep awake. Husbands, I want to talk to you for a moment. And I want you to be honest with yourself. Who are you guarding? Scripture tells you to be on guard. What are you guarding? Hopefully, it's the heart of your wives. 
If you have children, then guarding their hearts and souls with the gospel. If you have grandchildren, then prayerfully, it's for them guarding their souls and their hearts with the gospel. But men, something you have to ask yourself, have you fallen asleep at what the Lord has given dominion over? He's told you to stay awake. Wives, what are you guarding? Hopefully you're guarding the heart of your husband. If you have children, you're guarding their heart and souls with the gospel. Church members, Christians, what are you guarding? Some of you aren't married. Some of you don't have kids. If you're here and you love Jesus, all of you are Christians, what are you guarding? Hopefully it's the beauty of the gospel and each other, one another, serving one another, loving and caring for one another. A sleepy Christian can't guard a thing. A sleepy Christian is unfocused and undisciplined, compromising at every turn, living as practical atheists. And what Jesus tells the disciples, right? He says, not just to you, disciples, but to all, stay awake. And that means your faith doesn't take a vacation. Your service to Christ does not take a break. Your fear of death does not lead you to compromise in order to preserve your life. Because Scripture is clear. Those who do it, you will lose it. We were called to stay awake laboring until our master returns home to gather us up and take us back. And as fun as the unclear may be, please listen to the exhortation of your rescuer. Stay awake. Now if you have found yourself asleep and your guard down against sin, not only your sin, but the sin of loved ones in your home, if you're not guarding and leading properly husbands and men, if you're not loving and respecting and guarding well wives, church, if you know that you're not guarding and loving each other well, then church, you have to repent of that. You need to confess that. So church, that's what I ask that we do. That we spend some time in repentance. Asking for forgiveness and where we have fallen asleep. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.